from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower. This week at the JW Marriott Camelback Inn in Scottsdale, Arizona. On this week's edition, the wrap on green packaging, the bottom line on sustainable investing, the many shades of diversity and inclusion, and Erica Karp on the skill of listening. We are all ears this week on 350. It's February 7th, 2020. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350 here at the Green Biz 20 conference in Scottsdale, Arizona. And with me, as always, is Green Biz editorial director, Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Hey, Joel. What a week. Um, it's just amazing. We had uh, close to 1,500 people here in Arizona, lots and lots of moving parts. We'll get to some of that. And uh, how, was, how was your week? Incredible. I came early. I did not get to spend it with at one of the summits with you, which I know you're going to talk about in a moment. But I did spend it immersing myself in a number of sessions about the Sustainable Development Goals. That was sort of my thematic focus for the week. But I always love this conference because the attendees are so willing to share their knowledge. And I'm always impressed by the networking opportunities at GreenBiz. Yeah, the spirit of generosity has always uh, been a, a hallmark of the Green Biz community. And, and yeah, it seems to get that way ever more so uh, every year. So, so you, you were immersed in the SDGs, the, the Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, give us a little flavor of the kinds of events that were taking place around the SDGs. Well, I uh, went to several events that were, many of them organized by the UN Global Compact, which is trying to get businesses to not just align with the SDGs, but really start thinking about them as a framework for innovation. So we heard a lot about why we shouldn't just be minimizing the risks, why we should be maximizing the opportunities. So uh, as it was one example, um, I was listening to a session with Bristol-Myers Squibb, and they were talking about a new service, a new product that they were developing that had to do with mental health. And they hadn't thought about including this, this one particular constituency in the process. And so as they thought about the gender and the sort of equality types of inclusiveness natures of the goals, and I'm not going to try to name which number because I don't map my, I don't map my brain that way, but they, they talked about how the, the product changed dramatically after they thought about including this, this community in a different way and how that will be an opportunity for them moving forward. I mean, there's a lot more more profound examples, but it just even simple things that could help win over a company. So operationalizing the SDGs. So one, one of the things about the SDGs is a 15-year plan. We're now five years into it, so we've got 10 years until 2030 to meet these big, hairy, audacious goals. And a lot of the way it's been talked about is that the first five years we're sort of mapping and figuring it out. But this now, 2020 into 2030, is the decade of action. Did you get a sense that their companies are really leaning in and not just, you know, mapping things to mapping the SDGs to things that they were already doing and saying, oh yeah, we're doing number two, seven, eight, nine, and fourteen. Or is this really happening? Are there new initiatives? I got the sense that people are willing to move beyond the mapping phase now. So it's five years in. We've got to take action. We're behind. I mean, and that was 
admitted to, acknowledged a number of times, we are not going to make them. We, and I say we as a society statement, unless businesses actually do take action. And I did get the sense that now that the mapping is done, companies are stepping back and saying, yeah, really, we can't support all 17. I mean, you, you have to sort of intellectually support all 17, but really to focus your priorities, uh, you, you have to pick a few. And um, the, the framework for, our, for innovation around them is, is one of the things that came up often in the, in the panels. And no, I can't point to a company that has done a really good job of taking action on an SDG. However, I feel like we're at a tipping point. Well, that's good. Well, that was one part of it. The UN Global Compact, as you said, had their own event here, one of many outside organizations that has their events now on site here in Scottsdale alongside or before or in one case after the uh, Global, uh, Global Reporting Initiative, GRI, had their event Thursday night after the event ended at, at noon on Thursday. And then we had all these other special programs. This is beyond the 100-some sessions and a couple hundred speakers. We uh, had the Emerging Leaders Scholarship that we always do. That's so inspiring to have these 10 young people to who, for whom we paid not just registration, but airfare and hotel. And uh, thank you to PwC for sponsoring that this year. I want to just add on to that. A lot of our 30 under 30 alumni were here, and I had uh, some of them on stage. Kamala Knight was on the diversity panel. Uh, tremendously well-spoken, young, professional, and so inspirational. I had an opportunity to actually meet a number of them in person, which was exciting. So I just wanted to put that plug in for 30 under 30, too. And we're going to be uh, starting our hunt for the 2020 class of 30 under 30s coming up uh, in the next month or so, I think. So, so yeah, we had them. We had uh, the uh, coaching corner and a community tree planting. And I heard sunrise yoga. God knows I was not there for that. Uh, the roundtable lunches, which is when there's uh, some expert on different topics. We had 25 or 30 of those, I think. And whole range of topics. And you uh, just enjoy lunch. Uh, biomimicry hike, which... I still have not made, but I heard several people say it was fabulous that the uh, woman who led that, who's uh, so local here, or a couple, I guess, led it, uh, Joe Zazera and Michelle Feller, did a just spectacular job of pointing this out. Then we had these two summits, the Supply Chain Transparency Summit, and then, of course, uh, Greenfin Summit. You might have been involved with Greenfin, I think, Joel. I think that you've lived and breathed that this week. I did hit, inhale some green fin, uh, yeah, and uh, no, I, I, I emceed and chaired and, and, and uh, helped uh, put that together, and uh, it was a great event. We had uh, the second annual one last year, we had a half-day event with 100 people. This time it was a full-day event, two half-days actually, with 200 people, and uh, we had $22 trillion worth of assets under management in the room, including BlackRock and, and State Street, a number of big big. Uh, asset owners and managers and banks and and uh, all the sort of organizations like SASB and GRI and, and others that are working on these issues. It was a really good conversation. And, and, I, and I say that not because I thought so, but some people who have been to many, many of these, you know, sustainable finance kinds of events said this was a really good level of depth of a high level and yet deep conversation high level in terms of the people in the room because the challenge here is how do you get the investors and the asset owners the asset managers the ratings agencies and the corporate reporters the companies reporting to all these groups aligned and they're not and um, you know it's hard to imagine that for all the 
finance events and summits that I see and get pitches for all the time that this still isn't covered, but apparently we've, we've broken some new ground here and very enthusiastic and a lot of uh, energy around uh, can't wait till next year. Mm -hmm. Well, I wasn't there, as I mentioned, because uh, you were, but I heard quite a bit of uh, positive buzz, and I, I, well, I actually have a question for you. Why now? Why do you think we're, we're at this, this, uh, this moment, this inflection point? Did you see Larry Fink's letter? I know you did, but the, he did two things in that letter. One was to uh, say that every company should be doing a couple things. One is is creating science-based targets, and the other is hewing to the SASB, the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, a framework for how to report, and I, and I think also the TCFD, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. And in the letter, he used the term climate risk eight times, I counted. And, and I think that's really, uh, as much as anything, is that we are now at the point where it's not just a nice to do, where you have to, you wanna show a good uh, stewardship and a, and a good corporate responsibility face, and so you're gonna uh, report these things. This is now what investors need. There is a lot of pressure on companies, publicly held companies, to be more forthcoming about what's the risks they face in the world of climate change, not just to their facilities and physical plants, but also to their supply chains, their customers, their employees. And if, if you're not reporting, uh, you could find yourself, uh, you know, your stock being discarded, shorted, whatever. There were two things that I found particularly intriguing because I, I was grilling people who were there. One was it seemed that more companies were thinking about long-term value, right? We're getting away from the sort of short-term declarations of quarterly earnings and what you talk about on that call. And I, I think there was a realization that that needs to change. And many of the companies in the room were thinking about how they could have conversations with their C-suite about what goes on on that call, because those calls are very, they shape how, how Wall Street thinks about companies yeah. and how they think about this dialogue in general. I also had a fascinating conversation with HSBC about how they're training their employees the people that are facing, client facing, to talk about climate risk, because that also needs to happen. I think the banking, uh, the, everyone in the bank branches and, and on the phones with clients needs to understand this dialogue as well, and that hasn't happened. I, but I do think that some of the big Wall Street firms and financial services companies are thinking about how to engage their employees to have those conversations. Yeah, the short-termism thing is is definitely a work in progress. We're not there yet, but we're moving in that direction. Uh, we heard this week a couple times from Mindy Luber, the president of Ceres, and once at the Greenfin Summit, and second, an interview that I did with her on stage that I think we're going to play a clip of uh, a little bit later in this, in this episode, uh, talking about you know, sh the shift, the pivot away from short-termism. Still early stage, but uh, it, it, it may be the beginning of a trend. So another topic, another ingredient of conversation, if you will, at, at the event this week was the new, drumroll please, Verge Food uh, initiative that we're, that we're launching later this year and, and this new newsletter that we're launching next week. Joel, what's up? Well, food was definitely on the menu here at the JW. Uh, Marriott Camelback Inn, and not just because we had some great meals and receptions and all of that, but and we had a, a, quite a number of sessions, including the Supply Chain Transparency Summit that focused on sustainable food systems. 
and uh, a number of other sessions along those lines. But that's all part of, of, of our growing focus on food. And as you said, we announced this week that we're going to be launching Verge Food. It's going to be part of the Verge ecosystem of conferences that we hold during the last week of October this year in San Jose, California. So there'll be Verge Energy, Verge Transport, Verge Circular, Verge Carbon, and now Verge Food looking at sustainable food systems. So we had uh, Jim Giles, who's uh, chairing the both Verge Carbon and Verge Food as our analyst in that arena, had a great conversation uh, with the head of sustainability at Cargill and talked a little bit about this from the main stage that we're launching this conference. And, and next week, on February 13th, we're going to be launching the first edition of Food Weekly, a weekly newsletter that Jim will be editing looking at food-related issues. So I'm pretty excited about that. I'm very excited about that, too. I had a number of meetings here with food companies, and they're super excited. But there's so many rich uh, topics of conversation, everything from regenerative agriculture to, of course, the opportunity that farmers have to, to change their economic value and economic value proposition for the, for the marketplace. And, of course, everything from plant-based uh, foods and how, 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 what are the trade-offs of, of that, but also, also taking traditional foods, beef, and making it a far more sustainable uh, proposition to have on your plate. Yeah, and then there's, of course, this thing called climate change and how that impacts both positively and negatively agriculture, biodiversity, growing interest in concerns around that, food waste, food equity issues, food tech or ag tech issues. Uh, it just goes on and on. We're not going to tackle all of those um, at, at Verge Food, at least not in the first year, but let's just say that it'll be a full plate of topics. The other thing that was fun about this week, Heather, was being back here at the JW Marriott Camelback Inn. We started, uh, well, we didn't start here, but we've had this event here for a number of years, and we outgrew it because we had almost 1,500 people here. We outgrew it and moved uh, to the Desert Ridge, another Marriott facility uh, about 10 or 20 miles from here. But during that time, they uh, renovated, built a con conference center, and it's now big enough to hold all of us and small enough that we could do a takeover of the hotel. So that really was fun to have this beautiful property at the foot of Camelback Mountain um, in, here in Scottsdale to be the venue. And people just seemed to rise to the, that this the venue. And, and, and the unfortunate part, but it didn't really seem to matter, is that whereas uh, most times in February at this event, uh, this is our sixth or seventh year here in Phoenix area, uh, it's 70, even 80 degrees. This is in the 50s. It was kind of cold, and at night it was in the 30s. So lots of fires and s'mores and lots of uh, uh, portable heaters, and, and people made the best of it. But uh, I, I just love being here. And by the way, we're booked here till at least 2023. Uh, so we'll be back and back and back. Lots of cozy conversations. Lots of cozy conversations. So let's actually hear some content from uh, some of the sessions, particularly main stage sessions. Um, what, what do you got queued up for us, Heather? Well, as you alluded earlier, Mindy Luber, the president and CEO of Ceres, was here uh, sharing her views on, on how investors would like companies to talk about climate risk and climate opportunity, um, as well as how they should be reporting uh, their environmental, social, and government issues. So you had the opportunity to interview her on main stage, and I always enjoy hearing Mindy 
talk about this issue because she's so passionate about it and because she's been thinking about it for a very long time. And one of my favorite questions was, you want from you, Joel, was when you asked her what made this moment different. 10 years ago even, I won't go all the way back to 30, when we talked about sustainability in a boardroom at a CEO level with some of our members of our investor network, um, it, it was, sustainability was a sidebar. It was an issue that maybe they would think about on a rainy day, or if you wanted to know about sustainability, go to the foundation of a company or go to a sustainability intern of an investment firm. Think about where we've come. For every one of you who have been toiling in the fields or pushing your enterprises, and I know you have, and everyone here should be congratulated, nobody's rolling their eyes when we say we are there to talk about sustainability. Nobody's having us talk to a manager who deals with compliance of environmental or financial rules. It is a different moment in time. We're seeing the world's largest companies starting to integrate sustainability from the boardroom to the supply chain. We're working with 395 global investors on climate risk, a financial risk to their enterprises and to their portfolio. Within those 390 members are $40 trillion worth of assets saying we want to look at what climate risk means to portfolios and what kind of change we need. So the world is so different, Joel, as you and I should take delight in. Now, of course, I'm with you. I'm up at nights worrying about the next 10 years. Um, but we're off to a good start. And just this year, just think about since January 1st, Microsoft makes one of the most audacious commitments on not only getting to net zero in their emissions for climate, but getting below that. How they're going to do it, some of it's technological, but they do have a plan. Or Larry Fink, and some believe it's an overly used letter, but Larry Fink, who runs BlackRock, $6.8 trillion in assets under management, issued two letters three weeks ago to his employees and to his, or to his CEOs and to the portfolio companies or in his portfolio saying, sustainability is now part of how we look at our investments, how we analyze risk, how we look at opportunities, where we'll put our money and how we'll vote our proxies. A very big deal, and State Street followed with a letter, their $3 trillion last week, not quite as strong, but pretty bold. So different times, Joel, and yeah. it's exciting. And then I had the opportunity to moderate a panel of extraordinary individuals focused on diversity and inclusion. And actually something I wasn't even really thinking about when I was on stage, but not only was it a diverse set of industries, it was also a diverse set of, of perspectives from title, but also from age. We had a, a chief sustainability and diversity officer from MGM Resorts, Jyoti Chopra, and uh, we had the director of, of diversity and inclusion from eBay, uh, Berica Lean, as well as Kamila Knight, so she's a Unilever uh, North America diversity and inclusion lead and also with one of our 30 under 30 honorees. And their perspectives were so spot on, they, they, they were authentic, and I think the, I, I kept having people come up to me after the session saying what uh, an impact it had on them. And one of my favorite moments was when I asked them how they engaged with employees within their organizations, what was an effective way to get people talking about diversity and inclusion and feeling safe to talk about it. And so that is what you'll hear next. So we've tested something that I believe we found huge success with, and it's all around immersive experiences. So if you provide a safe, a safe space 
and you give folks the latitude to ask all of the tough questions they would love to ask, but they usually only talk about these things around the family dinner table or at the bar with friends, but create that space in the workplace for people to have facilitated, safe conversations, you'd be surprised how, how much empathy has grown coming out of these types of dialogues. We've launched a series called the Courageous Conversation Series, and that's what we've done. We opened up eBay's doors, we brought in folks who represent different parts of society who historically may have been a bit misunderstood, a bit misrepresented, and we created a space for eBay employees to ask these individuals any of the tough questions they always wanted to ask. So someone who's an ex-gang member, someone who is a black Muslim woman, someone who served in a war, someone who's conservative, someone who's liberal, someone who voted for Trump, somebody who voted for Hillary, and we created this safe space for folks to just have these dialogues. And interestingly enough, even though we had security and ER in the room, just in case, we didn't need it. We didn't need it. And the energy, the buzz that was created in the room was infectious to the point where we launched it in San Jose in 2018, and since then, it's gone through five European cities. It's incredible. So just creating that space, and sometimes creating that safe space just means someone seeing you saying, hey, it's safe, and this isn't going on your performance review, we're not recording anything, and folks just, they wanna have these dialogues, they wanna engage, so creating that space, I think has done wonders for us at eBay. Yeah, just building on uh, Beric's point, I think access is another important part mm -hmm. of it. Um, in my previous role at Bank of New York Mellon, one of the things we did was small group conversations. Uh, but with our chairman, CEO, president, members of our board who really cared and wanted to get underneath issues, understand what were potential roadblocks and barriers to advancement and have courageous and open conversations and were willing to be vulnerable and to listen um, and provide feedback and support on a consistent and sustained basis. And so we did small group, very intimate and formal sessions over a period of time. And I think that really helped break down a lot of barriers. Anything to add? Um, I agree with everything you both said, but uh, you know, going even further than that, I think it's um, leveraging or amplifying the voices of our business resource groups. And we call them business resource groups for a reason, um, because they actually do relate back to the business. And when people see the impact on the business, they're more likely to engage them. Um, so many of our business resource groups do think do things like what Barrick was talking about, hosting courageous conversations and opening the, opening the doors for people who identify in that space mm -hmm. to talk to other people mm -hmm. and allow them to come and ask them those questions. And then there was Erica Karp. Uh, what a great voice she is on, on the whole area of uh, uh, investing and, and in this case, uh, corporate and entrepreneurship. Um, what did you cue up for us from Erica? So Erica, in conversation with John Davies from, from Green Biz, was uh, very funny, first of all. I just, I bust a gut watching her from the sidebar. Mm. But uh, one of the things that really struck me was her reminder to everyone that we're humans and that we have to listen to each other and that one of the most effective ways to, to come up with new ideas and to innovate and to be an entrepreneur is to really listen. And so that is what we'll play next. It, it, it's uh, something that really struck me um, and, and something she almost chastised the audience about, like, remember to do this. So that is the clip you'll hear next. I think people forget that if you really want to sell something, you have to try to kind of penetrate the decision-making process of the person that you're trying uh, to work with. 
And I think that decision-making process over the last decades, it's, it's been kind of forgotten. We've kind of sucked the humanity out of capitalism. We've sucked it out of the country, companies sometimes. We've sucked it out of Wall Street. And it's such a shame because that ability to sell is also really critical uh, to the ability to innovate. And so simply, I think, what you need to do to innovate, um, to innovate and have impact, you got to listen. And then you got to help influence people to do what really is sensible. And it's best if you can make them think that that was their idea in the first place. So, so wait, how are we going to get humanity back into capitalism? I think that's a great question. And what, it's simple in that we have to make people feel. You know, when you're working with someone, feel them, listen to them. And don't just listen, hear. And observe, observe what's going on. What does this person want or need? And that is how you start to sell. And so that's where you have to get to know people. It's about people and humanity and feeling, right? You make decisions with your head, but then you make decisions with your heart and you make decisions with your guts. And it's not just about the numbers. Joining me now is Green Biz Associate Editor Deanna Anderson. Hey, Deanna. Hi, Joel. So this is your first Green Biz event here in Phoenix, and uh, what do you think? I'm really enjoying myself so far. Uh, the venue is amazing, and also there's a lot of talk about collaboration, um, and I'm really interested in exploring this whole theory of coopetition. This was something that was brought up in a panel that I attended uh, this week, and it's something that I feel like more companies should engage in. So coopetition is a combination of cooperation and competition. How, what was the context in which you heard it discussed? Um, there were companies that were talking about working to, together um, to basically achieve their sustainability goals uh, in, in a way that helps them drive their profits. So in the course of the week, um, I know you're going to talk a little bit about some of the, some of the, or at least one of the sessions you went to. Um, what have been some of your impressions of the sustainable business community, the movement? You know, sort of, you're relatively new to this. What do you think about what's going on here? It seems like people understand that there's an urgency here, probably more than the greater public. Um, it seems like everyone really does want to push each other forward uh, to achieve their goals. So I'm really excited to be in this space. So you have uh, been following a lot of the circular economy sessions. And uh, what one you want to tell us about? There is one, it was a tutorial, which was about three and a half hours, called Rethinking Packaging, How to Set, Implement, and Achieve Plastics Packaging Goals. And something that I thought was interesting is that there was a whole panel of three of them, and one of them was focused on not plastics packaging. Like, they talked about paper recycling and also aluminum, and what are the trade-offs in using those different materials. So what were the trade-offs? What did you come away with? Basically, there's challenges wherever you go. Like, if you use paper, uh, depending on what you are packaging, there might be some type of film on it. So that might not be the best way to uh, achieve your sustainability goals. It can't be recycled, right? Exactly. It can be recycled. Um, there's just a whole other steps that have to be um, involved in the whole 
potential recycling process. So when I was at that panel, um, I talked to a few different people about how companies can work together to achieve their packaging um, goals with regard to sustainability. So how to remove their packaging, how to eliminate as much as possible. The reality is that some products really do need packaging. For example, I talked with Katrina Schum. She's the sustainability officer at Lush North America. It's a co cosmetics brand. They have naked products. Basically, those products don't necessarily have any packaging on them. Um, that's one way that they get rid of the packaging, but it's also a challenge because sometimes their products get to their facilities and they're not in good condition. Um, so I talked to her. I also spoke with Olga Kachuk, who is the project manager at Blue, of Blue Green at the Sustainable Packaging Coalition, and Christopher Davidson, director of corporate sustainability at Westrock. I asked them how they can work together to drive their plastics packaging uh, goals. Well, let's see what they have to say. Hi, I'm Katrina Shem, and I'm the Sustainability Manager for Lush North America. I think there's a lot of opportunity as companies look to innovate their packaging. There's also a lot of opportunities to relook at how we design our products from the get-go. Um, and at Lush, that's one of the things that we do look at is how do we create products that require no packaging at all or relook at the business models that we have as businesses. So I think that's one of the ways that many of us can work together and share ideas. Hi, my name is Chris Davidson. I'm the Director of Corporate uh, Sustainability at Westrock. When people think about design for packaging, first of all, they have to think about what their customer wants. So uh, focus uh, on the performance characteristics. Make sure that the packaging does what it's supposed to do. Uh, then focus on the economics of the packaging. Make sure that you know not only does it do what it's supposed to do, but it can do it at a price that your customer will accept. And then also, and most importantly, think about the, uh, the, the recyclability of the packaging. Make sure that whatever you do, all those performance characteristics that you're putting in there, make sure that you also are not negating the re potential recyclability of the product. My name is Olga Kachuk, and I'm with the Sustainable Packaging Coalition. There's, a, I think, a huge opportunity for collaboration among peers in an industry space. So companies that are working in personal care can band together to look for you know, suppliers for recycled content. They can see where their goals align and where there are gaps in uh, trying to meet those goals. So whether that's from a sourcing standpoint, whether there are you know, packaging formats that aren't really recyclable right now, whether there isn't uh, enough infrastructure in the recycling system to uh, have that packaging be recyclable. So really finding your peers in this space and thinking about which goals you have in common and the barriers that you're all trying to you know, overcome and how together you might be able to just be more effective. Well, uh, that's a wrap on packaging. Thanks, Deanna Anderson, Associate Editor. Thank you, Joe. One intriguing component of Microsoft's recent pledge to become carbon negative was the importance that the company placed on being more involved with shaping government policies meant to address and mitigate the effects of climate change. That commitment emerges as more stakeholders call for the corporate world to stop sitting on the sidelines and speak up about the real effects that climate-related risks will have on their business and about the real economic opportunities that progressive policies could bring to communities around the world. Joining Green Biz 350 to chat about the heightened focus on corporate climate policy leadership is Victoria Mills, Managing Director of the Environmental Defense Fund. Victoria, thanks for joining us. 
I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Heather. So Microsoft's commitment seems pretty unique to me, actually. Give us a sense of how many big companies are actually involved in, in this sort of thing right now. Well, this is, I think, one of the most exciting things about Microsoft's announcement is their commitment to get more actively engaged in shaping climate policy. And, and the reason that's so important, not just for Microsoft, but for all companies, is if, if we're ever going to have a hope of reducing greenhouse gas emissions in line with what the science says is necessary to avoid catastrophic climate impacts, we need to get to net zero emissions by 2050. And in order to get there, it's going to take a transformation on a colossal scale that really can't be done without uh, strong and effective and durable policies. So a lot of big companies have been pretty shy <laughs> about talking about this, at least at the, at the policy level, a political level, if you will, I'll, I'll say that word. So why is saying nothing not an option anymore? And, and how are investors actually shaping this? Yeah, well, there's a lot to unpack there. So I think, I think that trend of companies staying silent is starting to be reversed. Just in the last year, you had the, the announcement of the CEO Climate Dialogue, a group of 20 companies and four NGOs, of which EDF is a part, advocating for a federal for federal climate policy that includes a price on carbon. You had the Climate Leadership Council putting forward a legislative proposal uh, with the carbon tax. And you had 75 companies showing up on Capitol Hill through the lead on carbon pricing advocacy days. So I don't, I don't think, it, it, you know, Microsoft is part of a larger movement here of companies stepping up to the plate and to this new level of leadership that's really required in the new decade. You asked about why silence is not an option. I mean, <laughs> because with silence, we'll, we'll not be able to solve the climate crisis. So that's reason number one. We absolutely need companies using the most powerful tool they have to fight climate change, which is their political influence. So the second reason climate silence is not an option is that if the good guys stay silent, the bad guys get their message through and that's all that lawmakers hear. So if the most vocal companies until recently have been the ones that oppose action on climate through public policy, and that's gonna continue unless the companies that want to be leaders on this issue step up and raise their voices. So I'm gonna go back to the investor angle. How, how are they involved in shaping this? You know, is it, is it the risk? Well, yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's so interesting to see how investor interest and involvement in corporate sustainability and driving that has evolved um, over the over the years. So initially, there was this focus on ESG performance, and that remains uh, a strong interest by investors because it just makes financial sense. Companies that do a good job on environmental performance and on on social performance and on governance those performance indicators correlate to strong financial performance. So it's natural for investors to take an interest and to reward companies that do well on ESG indicators. I think as investor understanding of climate risk has increased, they've started asking much more about what are you doing to manage climate risk? Not just how 
how good are you at reducing your own greenhouse gas emissions, but how are you responding to the climate risks that are developing? And that's, you know, you've seen that through the task force on climate related financial disclosure and similar initiatives. So a lot of companies are really in response to investor scrutiny, thinking a lot more about climate risk management. So where that needs to go is not just how good a job are you doing as a company managing climate risk, but what are you doing to reduce the system-wide risk of climate change? In other words, no matter how good, how airtight a climate risk management plan a company has, like we're going to make these changes to our sourcing and we are going to protect our operations this way and we have these alternative ways of, of sourcing our materials uh, and we're going to protect our employees and our communities this way. There's nothing, no matter how good a job a company does at all of that, that will not protect them against the tsunami of climate-related impacts that are inevitable without climate policy. So what investors should be asking is, how are you insulating your company against climate risk, but what are you doing to solve the fundamental problem? Because you can't uh, diverse as an investor, you can't diversify away from climate risk. And so investors need to be um, asking companies again, how are they using their political influence, which is a really powerful tool to advance climate action in the Congress and at the state level and everywhere that the company has an opportunity to make a difference. Yeah, you've mentioned carbon pricing and carbon taxes a couple of times. So what sorts of policies should receive their attention? Obviously, that's one of them. But what other, you know, what are we talking about here? Where should they be engaged? Yeah, so getting to net zero is going to take policy action at multiple levels. There's no silver bullet to get there. And it's going to take a portfolio of policies, including a national system that ensures that we get dramatic reductions in greenhouse gas emissions across the economy, complemented by very targeted policies that accelerate low carbon innovation, that fund R&D, that address barriers to clean energy and energy efficiency, and that could be in buildings or transportation and in industry. Uh, the ag sector is really important, so we need policies to support farmers and forest landowners, too, to reduce their emissions and improve resilience. And then finally, we need to make sure that this package of policies also ensures equitable outcomes for communities and to, especially to the areas that are hardest hit by climate change and by the transition to the low carbon economy. So your session this week at GreenBiz 20 did focus on this issue. How would you suggest that companies engage practically? What, what advice would you have for them and how to get started? Well, we have um, a handy dandy leadership framework that we call our AAA leadership framework. It has three elements. Advocate for policies that are consistent with getting to net zero by 2050. Align your trade association's advocacy with that same net zero goal, because trade associations have a lot of political clout. And the third piece is allocate your political spending to be consistent with the climate goals and to not obstruct climate progress. So that's the leadership framework. We've also developed a guide for companies that spells out more specifically what are the actions that you can take in each of those three A's and how can you get started. 
And we posted that guide on medium.com. And I'll give you the URL. It's medium.com forward slash at time to lead. And it's the same place where we posted a letter from 11 NGOs that came out last October saying, this is the new standard for climate leadership. Companies need to lean in on climate policy. Um, that's what leadership looks like in the next, in this new decade. Well, thank you, Victoria, for your thoughts. You just heard from Victoria Mills, Managing Director with EDF. Thanks, Heather. One of the many things that happened this week at GreenBiz20 in Phoenix was the launch of the Capitals Coalition, uh, coming together of two other organizations. And here to talk about that is the CEO of the Capitals Coalition, Mark Goff. Hey, Mark, welcome to Phoenix. Hi, Joel. Uh, so give us the lowdown on what is the Capitals Coalition? Who are the two organizations that came together? So the Capitals Coalition, which we're announcing today, is bringing together the natural Capital Coalition, which has been around for about five years, and the new Social and Human Capital Coalition, which has only been around for a couple. So it's uniting the natural, the social, the human, and the economics in how we make decisions. So I'm sure a lot of people have this basic question of what exactly is natural capital and how should companies think about it? So natural capital is the resources, the renewable or the non-renewable resources that we rely upon. It's the air, the water, the soil, the nutrients. Social human capital is the people, the, the glue that sticks things together, the trust that we have in society. And we can look at these individually, as we have been doing for some time, and trying to make decisions about our relationship with the environment. But we know that that isn't the only case. We've got to look at an integrated way across both natural, social, human, and economic when we make our decisions. So the idea of capitals assumes that, uh, I, I guess, that you can put a dollar or euro amounts to each of these things and then integrate them into profit and loss statements, or is that not what's going on here? So that, that is one way that people do look at it, uh, putting monetary values on. But what we're really looking at here is about the, the real value of something, the relative importance and worth of our relationship to nature and people. So money is just one form of value. Um, and although lots of people are trying to monetize this, and it does make sense for a capex decision in business or other uh, things like that. But if you're looking at operational decisions, you might then want to think about other ways of um, comparing. So you may look at a scale of being more important or less important, and that's still value. So I'm the uh, chief sustainability officer at a, at a big honking company, um, and, and I'm interested in, in using this. How would I take the output of, of what the Capitals Coalition is going to be doing? Uh, first of all, what will that be? Research, I assume, of, and, and probably some maybe some convenings, but how, how do I want to use that, and what kinds of decisions sh would it help me inform? So the Capitals Coalition was formed by organizations, businesses, financial institutions, governments that wanted to share their practice. So what we do is we are the hosts of the conversation. So we're not actually doing the work. There's thousands of people out there that are. We've got about 350 um, organizations plus in the core of this that are very active and are doing lots of work, um, whether that's in governments or finance or business again. And then there's about 20,000 around the world that we're aware of that are actually actively doing this on a day-to-day -day basis. A lot of people 
aren't reporting this yet. It's just getting to that point where we're starting to see some stories coming out. But most of it is about internal decision-making. You've got to make a decision. And in your example, Joel, here, when you're this uh, head of sustainability in this uh, honking company, um, what you'll be looking at there is there'll be some risks that you'll be very aware of for your organization. Maybe it's around water. Maybe it's around the human capital and the resources you've got. But there'll be risks that you'll be trying to deal with. What we'll be able to do with the capitals approach, and we can help to introduce you to the right people to do this, we can provide you with tools, guidance, introductions to um, people and, and share some of those experiences with you. But what you'll be able to do is you'll be able to take that risk and really understand your relationship with it by putting it into a value rather than just a measurement. And this is really important. If you measure something, you get a number. Say you get a thousand tons of carbon. That by itself doesn't mean anything. The context that comes from that is the valuation. And that means how much is that carbon actually affecting the planet? What's it going to do to your bottom line of your business? How is it going to affect people? What's the climate change impacts that are going to affect the world in some way? And can you value those? Once you get those, then the board will make different decisions. Moving it from a measurement of a thousand tons into a value of an impact upon your business and on society, that's when you'll start seeing the change. So you've got this launch and you're just getting going as this unified organization. What should we be looking for in the next, say, six to 12 months from the Capitals Coalition? So the first thing we're going to do is come out with a, a simple primer to introduce the topic so that people can understand how these four different things interconnect. Like I said, we've got lots of people already doing one of these, either natural, social, human, or, or other things, but now we're bringing them together. We need to understand really what that means. We've also brought together 30 new organizations who are going to be leading this charge, and you can um, find out more about them on our website. But all of them are going to be starting new projects. So whether that shift, uh, which you may be familiar with, which is looking at the human rights work, whether it's um, S&P, which is very much looking at the markets um, work that's going on. And there's many other organizations. I can't name them all here. I'm leaving some out. Someone's going to be upset here. But have a look at our website. There's lots of new projects that will be starting and lots of ways that corporates can get involved in those, thing, in those ideas, in those projects to help them to make better decisions. And what is that website address? The website address is capitalscoalition.org. That's capitalspluralcoalition.org. Mark Goff is the CEO of Capitals Coalition. Thanks so much, Mark. Thanks, Joel. We will have some more clips from Green Biz 20 in next week's episode. But for now, that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, check out our free newsletters. We publish a different one Monday through Friday. It's five now and starting next week, six. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to find out more about them. We always love to hear from you. You can email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. 